There's often a misperception that being a well-liked, kind, and caring faculty member comes at the cost of rigor or high expectations. In this episode, we turn to an expert in the field of instructional communication to provide us with strategies we can employ to make the classroom a positive and productive learning environment. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Jen Knapp, an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and an Associate Dean in the School of Communication, Media, and Arts at SUNY Oswego. Welcome, Jen. Thanks, John. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks for coming. Today, our teas are... Black Raspberry Green Tea. Tea Forte Black Currant Tea. And I'm having Prince of Wales Tea. We've invited you to join us today to discuss your primary research area, Instructional Communication. What does research in instructional communication tell us about creating a productive classroom environment? So I'll start by telling you exactly what instructional communication is and what we do. Essentially, we're talking about communication between instructors and students that enhances learning or perhaps in some way affects the learning process negatively. We're more interested in how messages are delivered than the actual content of the course. So we're talking purely about communication behaviors by instructors and students and how that affects what goes on in the classroom, which should be learning. Does your area of research focus only on in-classroom communication or does it expand beyond the classroom? One of the things I research is out-of-class communication, and I think maybe at some point we will talk a little bit about that. But primarily, I focus on what is going on in the classroom, specifically what instructors are doing in terms of communication and how that affects students. What can instructors do to create a better classroom environment? There are a lot of communication variables related to instructional calm. The primary instructional calm bread and butter concept is this idea of immediacy. And immediacy has to do with increasing physical or psychological closeness between instructors and students. And the bottom line is, if you as an instructor engage in these verbally and non-verbally immediate behaviors, there's going to be more positive outcomes in the classroom for your students, specifically learning. But ultimately, what I think is really interesting is that even on a non-verbal level, you can influence what's going on with your students and how they are perceiving your messages, but also how they're wrestling with the content. It comes in two flavors, verbal and nonverbal immediacy. We, if we're talking about nonverbal communication. We're talking about everything but the words. People will commonly refer to it as body language, but it's also your tone of voice and how you use space and touch and things of that nature. Even something as simple as eye contact can make a difference in terms of what's going on between instructors and students in the classroom. Engaging in vocal variety, but also using humor calling students by name, all of these things can help increase the connection between students and instructors. Most people believe that the instructor-student relationship is an interpersonal relationship or a type of an interpersonal relationship, which means you're connected to each other in some sort of meaningful way. 
all the things that you value in terms of how you communicate with your friends and your family, a lot of that plays into what goes on in the classroom as well. People want you to make eye contact. People want to be around people who are funny. So there's a lot of research that suggests instructors that use humor in the classroom tend to get more positive evaluations, but also there's more learning that occurs in the classroom if an instructor is using humor effectively. Does that shift with culture? Yes. All communication occurs within a context. Culture is our biggest context. Immediacy in particular is very culturally based. It is something that you need to be careful of. Most of the research that I do and that I'm familiar with has been conducted here in the United States with traditional college age populations. But certainly if you were to travel abroad and perhaps you were to teach a semester away, then these rules may not apply. And it might not also apply if we have foreign students here who have not adjusted to U.S. classroom climates. Of course. Yes. So what are your biggest secrets? <laughs> related to teaching. Related. Oh, well, related to immediacy. Yeah. No, no one warned me. I had to divulge my, my biggest secret today. Let me go back to immediacy for a little bit and talk a little bit more about that and why that essentially is a positive thing. I don't think I listed the outcomes. You're perceived as more approachable. You are perceived as more student-centered, more responsive. You're friendly. You're open. And you are essentially inviting communication. So if you engage in these types of behaviors, you are going to invite communication. If you are an introvert, I don't recommend that you try to be overly immediate because students are going to pick up on that and then they're going to think, oh, well, this person is friendly. This person is a good listener. So I want to spend time with them. I'm going to visit with them. I want to get to know them. So you are inviting communication when you engage in these behaviors. But something you should also keep in mind in terms of immediacy, and this is probably more of a personal choice for me and other people may not agree, is that it decreases the status differential between you and your students. You are trying to give the perception, hopefully it's not just perception and it's reality, that you care for your students, you are engaged, you are enthusiastic, they see that you're passionate about your content, you're moving around the room, you kind of work the room when you engage in these physical behaviors. And so it decreases the status differential between you and them. For me, I like that in my classroom. I don't want to give the air of being the professor who has all the knowledge and the expertise and I'm looking down on everyone and being condescending. For me, I like to have not an equal partnership, but I want my students to feel like they are a partner in what is going on in the classroom. And anyone can share an idea. I can share an idea. It's open. It's friendly. And that's important when you're teaching something like interpersonal communication. You're talking about relationships. Sometimes that class turns into a self-help class. And everyone's talking about their problems with their partner or their family. Everyone's telling personal stories. You can't not tell personal stories when you're in that class. You don't want anyone to feel like you're being judged or that you are judging other people. So I like to have low status differential, low power distance between me and my students. And I can get to that point by engaging in these types of behaviors. I don't know if that's a secret necessarily. It might be a secret if you don't know about it. <laughs> it could be. Not a secret anymore. It could be. <laughs> but I think a misconception, and if you think of it in terms of power differential or having low power distance between you and your students, and some instructors might be uncomfortable with that setup. Is there a difference in gender related to this low power difference perception? 
I don't know if there's a difference in perception, but female instructors and feminine communicators, so those are two different things, are more likely to engage in immediate behaviors than more masculine communicators. You talked a little bit about how instructors can create more of a sense of immediacy by walking around the classroom, by maintaining more eye contact, and by using humor. What else can faculty do to help create the sense of immediacy? So remember that it's psychological closeness or also physical closeness. Have you ever had a student approach you after class and they want to talk to you and the desk is between you and that student or the teacher station or something like that? Something you can do in order to create that perception of closeness is to come out from behind objects. You don't want to stand in front of the classroom. You don't want to stand behind a little desk if you're in Lanigan 101 and you've got that teacher station, but you also have a couple of tables in the front. If a student approaches you, don't stand behind the table. You can move out from behind the table. Trying to make eye contact with people in the room. Smiling goes a long way in terms of just coming across as approachable and friendly. And the idea is if people find you to be approachable and friendly, they're going to engage in something like out-of-class communication. You're not going to go to your instructor's office hours if you feel like they're an evil troll, but you will go to their office hours if it feels like, you know what, I got this thing that's going on in my life. I need some extra time on an assignment. I feel like if I were to go see Rebecca, she seems like the type of person who would understand or who would at least listen to me. And you can do all of that just by modifying your behavior in the classroom. What happens when that openness gets to a point where those conversations move beyond class-related conversations like you just mentioned? Yes. So that particular example is there's something in my life, but it's related to the class. So what happens when it goes past that? Sure. That is definitely a risk. If you are engaging in this behavior and you are giving the impression that you are approachable and friendly and someone that listens, as I mentioned earlier, that invites communication. So you will have students show up at your door for reasons completely unrelated to the class. And maybe it is to seek help or advice about the relationships because they're in your interpersonal communication class, or it just might be they think you're a friendly person to talk to. That has happened to me. And I've sat through very awkward conversations or heard things from students that I felt like I had no business hearing. But you know what? Maybe if you can be a force of good or if they are disclosing something to you, if it's something like a sexual assault or something like that, then obviously it's much better. You don't ever want to hear that type of message, but it's better for them to feel as if that's someone they can talk to and they can confide in and then you could help them get connected to resources or something like that. But then there are also, on a much less serious note, students who are just looking for a friend and they're hangers on and they don't understand leave taking cues. So you might be packing up your things to teach your next class and trying to give the signal that it's time to go. And they might not realize that sometimes you have to have very direct conversations at that point. I have to go. I'm sorry. I, I can't talk to you about this any longer. You had mentioned the physical closeness, but you also said that there was verbal immediacy as well. Right. Psychological closeness. The verbal messages would be using students' names, using humor, telling personal stories, engaging in self-disclosure. Those would be all examples of verbal immediacy. And then the nonverbal immediacy would be moving around the room, using vocal variety, decreasing space between you and the students, using eye contact. That would all be examples of nonverbal immediacy. And ultimately, this leads to 
affective learning. And my goal as an instructor is always to create more communication nerds. So I did not start as a communication major, but once I fell into it, I absolutely fell in love with it and thought I cannot live my life without this. And everything I was learning in the classroom, I could immediately apply outside of the classroom. Every day in the classroom, that is my goal with my students, to get them to know something, be able to do something to better their lives, better their relationships, find an internship, whatever it might be. And I just love helping to produce calm nerds, people who are quoting calm theories to me, who are analyzing their conversations or the relationships and then telling me about it or having them explain how they taught their father about cognitive dissonance theory and then how they used it in a work situation or something like that. That's something that I love. And ultimately, affective learning, I feel, is really one of the best outcomes of immediacy and something that's important to instructional communication, getting students to learn because they like what they're doing. They see the value in it. They develop a positive attitude to what's going on in the classroom and the content that you're teaching them. And also, a lot of these behaviors, instructor behaviors, frankly, if you like your instructor, there's a good chance you're going to work harder for that instructor and that you're going to do well in the class. You might get to a point where you don't want to disappoint your instructor. But I'd actually like to ask you a question. If you could talk about some of your favorite professors and the types of behaviors that they engaged in that you really liked. That's a good question. I need a minute to think. It's funny that the first thing I can come up with are all the behaviors I don't like. <laughs> yeah, that strong works emotional reactions either way. Sure. Absolutely. I think thinking back to my college career, which was a while ago, sometime last century, <laughs> uh, many of the professors that had the most impact on me did exhibit these behaviors. They interacted with you outside of class a bit, and they demonstrated some sort of passion for the subject. And I think students want you to care about them, for sure. I start all my classes by asking them how they're doing, what's going on. So many are in clubs and organizations, so I say... What are you promoting right now? What is your organization doing? What's important to you? And then finally, does anyone have any good news? I just like to hear good news. And students appreciate that. And they sometimes, maybe once a month, remember to ask me how I'm doing, which is a win, I think. We get that at least once a month. <laughs> you model it and eventually it's right. reflected back, right? Eventually, yeah. I guess that's the theory behind it. The faculty that I remember the most or that I had really good experiences with are the ones that I had probably interactions with outside of class. Those are the faculty that I felt like I could go talk to who maybe pushed me harder because they got to know me a little bit to know how to push me in a way that was positive rather than pushing in a way that would have a negative impact on me. They always got more out of me. So I think everything you're saying was completely true for me. Yeah. The out-of-class communication piece is really important. And before we were studying it in communication and calling it out-of-class communication, people in education were calling them out-of-class experiences. There's a whole program of research and education devoted to this, and they studied more the outcome of those events. In COM, we study what leads to out-of-class communication more than anything else. In education, they were saying, but here's the good news. Here's all the good stuff that happens if students are communicating with you outside of the classroom. So whether it's during office hours or whether they run into you at Price Chopper, the first time you see an instructor outside of the classroom can be a bit daunting or jolting. 
students think that we just get put away in a closet overnight and brought back out the next day to teach. The first time they see you, it might be a little bit weird, but ultimately if they see you, they see you as human and you stop and you say, hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. What's going on? I know you've been playing your bass lately. What are you working on? What are you excited about? And those little things, like you mentioned, Rebecca, they add up. And they definitely make students feel better about themselves. It really helps with their development of sense of self and can also help with motivation in the classroom. How would this work in a larger class setting? Can these behaviors scale very nicely? Certainly walking around can, but what else can you do if you have a class of 400 students or so? Sure. All of this can certainly be scaled up. Now, I don't recommend if these types of behaviors or being immediate does not come natural to you that you launch right into trying to do all these things because students will sniff out that inauthentic. Yeah, lack of (laughs) authenticity. They will definitely sense that. The same with verbal immediacy, using humor as an example of verbal immediacy. But if you're not funny, do not try to be funny. It will not go well. But certainly you can scale this to larger classes, whether you're teaching micro 400 or I used to teach COM 100 to over 200 students. And I want to say, I'm sure it's not true. I want to be able to say that my teaching style was not that different, whether I was in front of 20 students for a capstone or 200 students for a large introductory course, because ultimately I'm still teaching the way that I think students should be taught. I'm still engaging these behaviors. I'm still aware of other instructional variables like clarity, like credibility. All of those things are still important. It doesn't matter necessarily the size of your audience. We typically say the bigger the audience, the more formal your communication needs to be. But I think there are exceptions to that as long as you are still being authentic in some sort of way. Any of our instructional variables that you might learn about can certainly be applied in a large lecture room. There's no set of categories that here's what you do in a large lecture versus here's what you do in a smaller studio level class. I know when I teach the large class, I generally get in somewhere between 30 and 50 flights of steps every class and usually two or three miles of walking because it's a big ways around. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Landing in 101 (laughs) is a big room. It's a hard room to work, too, because there's a whole sea of people in the middle that you can't get to. That's where eye contact really makes a difference. You just try to make eye contact with them because you can't physically get that close to them, but you still want them to feel as if you are speaking directly to them and you're not trying to be everything to 200 people in the room. Other than immediacy, are there other theories or principles that we should be aware of as instructors? There are a lot of instructional variables, and I think I'll share some resources that maybe your listeners would be interested in taking a look at later on. Something else that is important to me is credibility. Credibility is essentially believability. And if you are a professor, you should be in the business of being believable. It's important to remember that communication is about messages But at the end of the day, meaning is in the mind of the receiver. And so you can do your absolute best to craft what you think is the perfect message. However, whoever is getting or receiving that message and decoding that message, it's going through their personal filter. It might be a very benign message, but maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're really hungry, so they're not quite paying attention. You don't have complete control over how people decode your messages. You have to remember that meaning is in the mind of the receiver. What you might find credible is going to be different than what John feels is credible. Credibility is a perception. 
whether or not I am truly credible doesn't matter. As long as you think I'm credible, I win. I might be a complete moron. But if you think I'm credible, then it doesn't matter because then everything I say is going through that credibility filter. We usually talk about credibility as the three C's, competence, character, and caring. And for some people, different elements are more important. Some people who perhaps are more logically based competence or that perception of expertise or knowledge rules the day always. For some people, they just want to feel like you have some level of goodwill and you have their best intentions in mind. And that's the caring aspect of it. And for some people, it's character or it's honesty and trust that you are being honest and you're being truthful with them. And nothing else matters other than that character piece or that trust piece. For different people, different things are important or they're going to pay attention to different aspects of the message based on what they value more, whether it's the competence, the character, or the caring. So credibility is an instructional variable. And it's not just instructional. It goes across different communication contexts. But that's something that I think would be interesting for people to know about and to learn about power how you influence what's going on in the classroom, also something that can be studied across communication contexts. But how ultimately are you influencing your students? Are you getting them to do what you want them to do because you are rewarding them, because you're punishing them? Or are they doing it because they feel like it's the right thing to do and they are internalizing your message and they believe in the value of the work? And there's some other types of power as well. And then just plain clarity. Clarity is another instructional variable that's important in terms of how you structure your messages for your students in the classroom. The next thing we should probably talk about is what might go wrong or what should faculty avoid doing that might create a negative environment. There's a program of research in the 90s that investigated teacher misbehaviors. So I thought it'd be fun to ask you what some of those categories are. I bet you could come up with a lot of teacher misbehaviors. So what are things that instructors do that students don't like? Just rattle them off off the top of your head. I'm thinking. I'm a thinker. Don't overthink it. I know, but I have to still think. <laughs> they don't like it when you're condescending or you know it all. Sure. Especially if you're not only condescending, but wrong. So that competence <laughs> is kind of important as a factor there. Yeah. I do want to add a fun fact, yet also our cross to bear as people who study communication. I love producing communication nerds. I love people who are analyzing their conversations. They are putting into practice positive conflict management strategies. However, you can often get accused of applying your communication knowledge in a less than savory way. So some people get really upset because they feel like you're Jedi mind tricking them with your communication skills. Something to keep in mind that as comm majors, we often get yelled at for actually using what we're learning in the classroom because people don't want to fight fair. They want to hit below the belt and say mean things when you're like, let's be constructive. We don't want to be verbally aggressive. Let's try to just be argumentative. We'll stick to the arguments. That doesn't go over very well when you're having a fight with your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I think being late. Yep. That's a big one. Or not being prepared at the start of class is another thing. I hate when the technology doesn't work or there's serious user error. For sure. Anything else on your mind? They don't like it when you don't know their name or that extends to not just name, but gender pronoun pronunciation. There's a whole slew of things that probably snowball out of that. Absolutely. You got some good ones. I thought I would touch on a couple others that maybe you hadn't been thinking about. 
You did mention being condescending, but sometimes being sarcastic and using put downs is a problem for students, naturally. Unreasonable or arbitrary rules. If you think about your syllabus and what's in there, your syllabus sends a message on day one. You want to think about ultimately what you're sharing with students based on your syllabus. Inaccessibility. Students want to be able to see you out of the classroom. They want to visit you during office hours, being late. Definitely. But one I think that's interesting that we probably don't often think about is information underload. Students want to be challenged. Most students want to be challenged. And this ties into something that we had been talking about previously. There's this misconception that if you have a classroom that seems to be open and friendly and you are approachable as an instructor, that that means you are the easy instructor. And I have a major problem with that. I think it's absolutely possible for you to do all of those things, to be light as an instructor, but to also have high standards. And frankly, if you set a bar for your students and they exceed it, then you should continue to raise that bar. And ultimately, having or doing tasks that the students don't feel like are getting them to the end goal of the course is actually considered by them a misbehavior. That's something that you would want to avoid. I think that's a good one that it's most definitely overlooked. And yeah. you definitely hear those conversations. Oh, take this class because so-and-so is easy. All we do is talk. Yeah, there's certainly that misconception too. In comm studies in particular, like what do you do in that major? And I come from what we call communication and social interaction or communication, communication studies. We've had different names over the years. We thought CSI would be super cool and hip and it turns out people are like, I don't get it. I don't know what that is. <laughs> We're changing it back to communication. But if I tell someone, oh, I'm a journalism professor or a public relations professor or a broadcasting professor, like everyone has an idea of what that means. And if I'm a communication professor, they're like, so you just talk all the time? I'm like, no, there's actually more to it than that. Well, you do talk all the time in class, but it's about something. <laughs> We're communicating about communication, so it's all very meta. Yes, it's a good time. It's very deep. Yeah, it is. <laughs> of course it is all the time. Where can faculty go to find more information about instructional communication? Penfield does own the Handbook of Instructional Communication. We asked them, we being the Comm Studies Department, a few years ago to purchase that. So people can check that out of the library. The National Communication Association has some great links in terms of instructional communication and what to do in the classroom and how to enact certain behaviors. That is a great resource. There's another book that I like a lot called Communication for Teachers, which summarizes a lot of instructional communication literature and also talks about how to apply that to a classroom, whether it's K through 12 or in a college classroom. We'll share links to some of these materials in the show notes. So we mentioned earlier on talking about communication that happens outside of the classroom. So we've hinted at a couple things here and there, but could you talk a little bit more about those out-of-class experiences and that impact on learning? It impacts student motivation positively. So they have those moments and it can just be passing in the hallway or walking through the breezeway in Murano and it's just a simple hello to a student. That's something that they can take with them, put it in a little pocket and store that, oh, Professor Kane remembers my name or whatever it might be that makes a difference. But ultimately it gives a student an opportunity to connect with you on a different level in a different time space continuum, if you will. Everything is crazy before class, after class. Lots of people want a piece of you. 
if they take the time to come visit you during office hours. And that's more one-on-one time that they get to spend with you to develop those relationships. And certainly that can help them. Students who engage in more out-of-class communication tend to do better in their classes than students who do not engage in out-of-class communication. But it also has, besides classroom outcomes, has better outcomes for them personally. Networking, which you were alluding to earlier, as you met with your professors, you got to know them, they got to know you. Now when they get a call that someone needs an intern or needs someone who can do graphic design work, well, you and I were just talking an hour ago in my office, and I know that you have this skill set, so now I'm going to pass this opportunity on to you because I know that you're interested and I know that you can do the work. So that's a tremendous outcome for students. If they take the time to get to know their professors and their professors know them, when those opportunities come past, they can give those to the students that they've met and they've spent time with. And it just gives students another way to practice their interpersonal communication skills. We always end with the question, what are you going to do next? Something that is important to me as someone who studies communication, one, is to always correct people who say communications instead of communication. No S, just communication. But also to show people the value of what we study and what we know as communication scholars. One of the committees I sit on is the Title IX committee, and I'm also a Title IX investigator. One day, Lisa Evaneski was describing some of the cases that she was seeing as Title IX investigator, and she said these aren't necessarily Title IX cases. We're not talking about instances of interpersonal violence or sexual assault or anything like that. They're just, I don't know, messy breakups. And I'm like, oh, we can help with that. So in communication, and those of us that study interpersonal communication, we talk a lot about how to treat people positively, how to break up constructively how to just be a good human during those difficult times. And so there's been a group of us that are working in Calm Studies to create a workshop that Lisa can potentially direct people to that maybe need a little bit of coaching about how to treat people or how to be in a relationship or how to break up. But also we would open it to the campus in general. So anyone who's going through a nasty breakup or thinking about maybe it's time for me to dump this person and move on, how can I do that in a healthy, positive, productive way? How to use social media or not use social media during those times? So we're working on building a workshop on messy breakups, which will maybe eventually have a different title. But so far, we're just stuck on messy breakups. I think it works. Yeah. And our goal would also then be to turn that into some type of research as well, something that we could share with our discipline in terms of how we are applying and using our knowledge as communication scholars to help solve a problem on campus, something of that nature. A dream that I've always had and that I know John knows about is to develop some sort of instructor boot camp. It would go nicely with your badging program if we could have something where people would learn ultimately how to teach or how to best employ some of these instructional communication variables in order to get the best out of their students. But we could also talk about how to build a syllabus, how to write a syllabus, how to structure assignments, how to ensure that your messages are clear to your students, those types of things. So one real thing that I'm working on and one thing that I would like to at some point. An aspirational. Yeah, actually launch. I think we'd like to see something along those lines too here. Yeah. And I do think it's important to say I'm not the only person that knows about this stuff and that studies it. So I've got colleagues in Comm Studies, Catherine Threat and Mary Toll, 
all three of us graduated from the same (laughs) doctoral program in instructional communication. So there are a handful of us that are interested in this and that are dedicated to it, along with some other great interpersonal scholars in comm studies. I think what's really exciting about your workshop idea that hopefully is not just an idea real soon is that students will see a discipline in action. Mm -hmm. And the more ways that we can do those sorts of things on campus, the more real it is for students about how these things that seem like they're not applicable or they're not applied somehow in action. Some fields are maybe more obvious than others. Mm -hmm. And so the more we can be visible as scholars in the community and sharing that knowledge with the community, I think is always really nice. Yeah. Instructional communication is a great example of an applied field. Very good. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you both very much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Theme music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance from Nikki Radford.